The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. I saw a great visualization of this the other day. Somebody basically used glitter to describe how it just completely disseminates and, and adheres to surfaces. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call is based on several articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in March of 2020, but most specifically, COVID-19 and the Risk to Healthcare Workers, a case report. This was published on March 16, 2020, by a group from Singapore. Joining us on this podcast is Dr. Jeannie Marazzo, who is the Director and Professor of Internal Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at UAB. She's a noted quadruple threat. She's a great clinician, educator, and researcher, and has been a brilliant administrator since joining our faculty at UAB several years ago. We believe that you will learn a lot from this conversation and hope you can use this to stay safe. Jeannie, thanks so much for uh, joining us on Annals on Call. You've been doing a lot of work with CNN, explaining to the public what's going on with uh, COVID-19. What I'd like to focus on today is a number of articles in the Annals that are focused on how to protect our healthcare workers, our physicians, nurses, the people who clean the rooms, etc. And in that Maybe you could talk about, at this point in time, what was done to prepare for this, and what should we be doing now to minimize the risk, because our healthcare workers are so important. Great question. We have had pandemic planning in this country, largely due to fears of pandemic influenza, but certainly, I would say, accelerated with the SARS um, scare in in the early 2000s. And it's interesting to talk to the people who have been involved or were heavily involved in that planning, because I think everybody feels like they were quite thoughtful about all the infectious issues. So the stockpiling of of medications, the development of a vaccine and the timeline and how that would figure into the response. What nobody, I think, thought about very deeply was the profound economic and social effect that that extensive quarantine and social distancing measures would have. I mean, nobody ever, I think, dreamed that something like the COVID-19 pandemic could potentially create what might turn out to be the next depression. So, you know, we, we've had decent guidelines for these uh, viruses that we know are primarily contact transmitted, um, some respiratory uh, droplet transmission, but the other parts, I think we just did not really anticipate it. What should we be doing to make it as safe as possible for uh, the physicians and nurses who are working on the front line? 
Well, right now would be to make sure that everybody has the level of PPE or personalized protective equipment that would be indicated for their situation. When we first started thinking about this, we were very focused on protecting people who were going to be in contact with known cases of COVID-19 or who were doing procedures on people who were under investigation. Unfortunately, you know, what we have realized is that this virus is so infectious and the prevalence is so high, so it's becoming so endemic that people are potentially infectious as soon as they hit the emergency room or they hit the urgent care clinic. Um, and then when they get admitted and they get sicker and there's a potential for aerosolization, that risk just goes up dramatically. So I think right now some level of facial mask, at least at a minimum, is definitely required from the initial contact with any patient who comes in with any symptoms that are consistent with uh, COVID-19. And of course, those include fever, myalgias, shortness of breath or cough. I think there are some other symptoms that you need to pay attention to, but right now that sort of uh, quartet is really, really very focused my efforts. So, so definitely a mask in that setting. What mask you would say for that level of contact? Well, probably not an N95, ideally a surgical mask, but at this point, people are really resorting to pretty much anything to reduce their risk at that level. And that even includes cloth masks, which we know are not as effective as the uh, synthetic masks that we have routinely employed in the hospital. The next level, I think, is when do you, how do you prioritize your N95s, which, as we know, are in horribly short supply. And, and hospitals throughout the U.S. are having to make agonizing decisions about how to prioritize the use of N95s. So do you keep them for your proceduralists? Do you keep them for the people who are going to be intubating these patients? Do you keep them for the people who are going to be bronching bronx happening, which I think are happening less and less? So um, the N5s, I think, are, are critical. Um, we're now looking at trying to uh, sterilize those. There are two protocols out there that we can talk about if we have time, and there's no question um, that we're going to need to start doing that now. So I think the main advice is whatever respiratory protection you have access to as a healthcare provider and escalating the quality of that barrier by the intensity of your exposure. And the way that we talk about intensity of exposure really is two things. It's prolonged close contact, which is being within six feet of someone for a prolonged period of time or participating in aerosolizing procedures. And those include intubation, extubation, uh, and non-invasive advices, et cetera, et cetera. So the respiratory piece is big. The other big part, I saw a great um, uh, sort of um, visualization of this the other day. Somebody basically used glitter to describe how it just completely disseminates and, and adheres to surfaces. And if you've ever tried to clean up glitter from a kid's birthday party, you know that it stays around for what seems like ever, right? So, so we know that the virus can live viably for at least 72 hours on hard surfaces like metal or um, anything, anything smooth like that. It can live for 24 hours on something as porous as cardboard, which is, you know, a, pretty concerning. And then it also lives for three hours in droplets. At least simulated models indicate that. And there are, you know, there are caveats with that. 
So anything that you can do to minimize your risk of getting it on your hands, your clothes, and getting it to your face, your mouth, uh, or your eyes. So this is where the aggressive use of contact precautions comes in. And frankly, I think it's probably more important, if not as important, as the respiratory precautions we've been talking about. A lot of discussion about how people are really doing this, um, practically speaking. Um, and they certainly range from ditching your white coat, which I think nobody is wearing a white coat right now, to wearing scrubs that you can literally use for a single day, get out of them when you're in the hospital if you can, take a shower there if you can, if you can't, come home, um, you know, get your scrubs off where you're at work, come home in your regular clothes, get home, take your regular clothes off, get in the shower and put some fresh clothes on. So think attentiveness to, to contact precautions and the role of fomites like clothing um, is actually huge, huge pens, glasses, you know, drinking cups, all these things really should be considered carefully uh, when you think about this. So a long answer, but I don't think people can do enough to protect themselves. I will say that there are some silver linings here, despite the high rates of employee infection we have heard about in Wuhan and Italy. Um, in Seattle, you know, they initially had a huge number of employees infected at the life care, uh, long-term care facility. After that point, with the kinds of precautions that we're talking about now, including a face shield, which I'm not sure I mentioned because you do want to protect your eye, they have not had any more nosocomial uh, infections or I should say healthcare occupational infections in healthcare workers. Uh, so these measures, I think, can work but it really requires an extraordinary attention to detail and compulsiveness to follow them. One of the things that I think we get asked about a lot is because people are working such long hours, a lot of people are having things delivered to their house. They're having food delivered. They're having uh, whatever they buy delivered. How should people deal with deliveries in terms of making sure that they don't pick something up from a delivery person? Yeah, that's a great question. And I just actually found a nice resource um, on the conversation online, which I tweeted today, and I'm happy to share with um, with listeners uh, who are following you on Twitter. Um, you know, I, I tell people a couple of things. First of all, know your sources, right? So I think this is a good time to to really support the people who are working in the food industry, whom you know and trust, if you have the luxury and the, the wherewithal to do that. So order from people you know, whose restaurants or establishments you would feel comfortable going to, right? So you know their hygiene is good, you know they care about their workers, you know they care about the quality of their food. Now, that's not a luxury that everybody has, but if you can do that, I think that's very helpful because you know those people are going to be more attentive to the health of their workers, right? Because you don't want to, you know, buy from a place where people are going to, you know, <laughs> they have to contain whether they're sick or not because their employer is not going to take care of them. And I think that's an important point. The other thing is that going back to my comment about, about the virus being viable for 24 hours on cardboard, that definitely means that, and this is going to get to some of the articles I think you, you want us to talk about, we know the virus is shed on average for five days, right, before people become asymptomatic. So even a conscientious 
delivery person who doesn't work while they're having symptoms could unknowingly be contagious during that five days. So if you really want to be compulsive, I would suggest actually wiping down the containers. Or, I mean, if you really want to get into it, you can wear gloves and transfer the food from the containers to the uh, vessels that you're actually going to eat them in. And that, that would provide, I think, the best measure of, uh, of protection. I know it well, seems overly crazy, but at this point, I think we really probably can't be too careful. Well, we're being pretty crazy in our house because uh, we're doing <laughs> many of the things that uh, you just said. What about the incubation period? So people get infected and how long before they get sick and are they likely shedding virus prior to that time? Yeah, it's a great question. And I mean, again, a caveat that everything we are learning is evolving incredibly quickly. And when you look at the quality of the data that came out in the first month, a lot of it was imperfect. But, you know, we were really thirsty and desperate for anything, given that this was a completely new experience. I think the consensus with regard to the incubation period, i.e. the time from infection to symptoms, as the uh, Lauer paper um, nicely confirmed, even though there are some issues with that paper, is about five days. And no matter how you look at it, no matter what models people seem to be constructing, and there are more and more, I feel like every hour, I would say 4.5 uh, to 5.1 days is the medium. And the Annals paper nicely points out with this model that most people, at least based on those 181 confirmed cases outside of Wuhan, developed symptoms within 12 days. That number is, I think, what most substantially informed the CDC's guidance for quarantine of 14 days, right? If you recall, when we were thinking that we were going to get a handle on this by quarantining people returning from China and from increasingly other countries who started to see cases, the recommendation was 14 days for quarantine. Right now, just to jump ahead a little bit, you know we're not using that for people who are exposed because our workforce simply can't sustain that level of keeping people out of business. And in fact, right now, we're not quarantining anybody who's exposed because everybody's exposed. And as you probably know, we're simply monitoring them and continuing to recommend very meticulous mask use. So back to your question, um, five days, um, a lot of contact, a lot of infection is happening in those five days. And if you look at um, most of the healthcare worker infections, that have occurred, again, going back to the early part of our conversation, it's before the patient is identified as having COVID-19. So that's, that's, I think, an important point. And certainly most of the community transmission, I'm sure, is happening uh, with asymptomatic cases. There was something this morning about a choir um, in Skagit Valley, which is north of Seattle. And I think there were 60 people in the choir and none of them had symptoms. Um, they were very careful about contact precautions. They had hand gel, all this kind of really uh, good stuff. They knew that they were in a community that was already experiencing an outbreak. And I think that the majority of people in that choir still got infected and one died. So that says to me that, you know, number one, that infectious period is associated with significant respiratory shedding. 
uh, droplet transmission. And um, that is is really quite alarming. I guess the last question is the six-foot rule. Can you comment on that? Uh, and this is very important as a physician. Uh, I always like to sit next to the patient, touch the patient. Uh, I assume that for the next for foreseeable future, I shouldn't be doing that, even if I'm wearing a mask. Yeah, great question. Among the many sort of fundamental and time-honored practices that this crazy pandemic is going to upend, I think the kind of intimacy of our patient-doctor conversations and contact is going to be one of the casualties. We're now talking about taking histories from the door, and we're telling residents and fellows to take histories from the door of a patient's room because we're so concerned about how infectious this is, and we're so concerned about the human and system costs of depleting our workforce by, you know, progressively getting people infected. So I think the six-foot rule, I hope, is going to be a distant memory um, when we look back on this and, and think about having to maintain that distance from the people we're trying to take care of, which is, I think, very heartbreaking. The rationale behind it is, again, that those droplets remain infectious for three hours. And on average, when you sneeze, droplets probably have a trajectory. It depends, of course, on how hard you're sneezing. Um, but your average sneeze is about three feet. So doubling that gives you some sense of assurance that you are not going to be infected. Going back to the choir, I mean, thinking about that, we don't think about singing, but people breathe very purposefully and, and are trying to expel their breath, obviously, when they're singing, you know, professionally or really uh, heartily. And so those people were probably infected because they were not standing six feet apart. I'm sure they weren't because we were not that focused on that six feet. So I would say um, this is a time when the, the six foot plus the mask um, may seem isolating, it may seem unnatural, but it really is um, for an abundance of caution and you wanna keep yourself healthy because we need you around. Gina, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you uh, sharing these thoughts and uh, educating our listeners uh, about how to protect themselves, how to protect their staff, and help us uh, take care of these patients who des so desperately need our help. This is my pleasure, and thanks for your incredible advocacy, Bob, mm -hmm. and uh, being such a great role model. Appreciate you. I think I can say the same for you. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. The uh, most important thing that I took away from this conversation was that as physicians, nurses, and everyone else who works in hospitals, when a patient comes in who could possibly have uh, the coronavirus 19, we should treat them as if they have it and take all kinds of precautions because this is a very infectious agent. We should use appropriate distancing when at all possible. And this means that sometimes we have to take the histories from the hall rather than right by the patient's bedside. Our big continuing issue is having enough PPE for our physicians, nurses, and anyone else who comes in contact with patients. 
We all hope that you stay safe and healthy during uh, this pandemic. Thank you for listening to Animals on Call. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.